November greetings and welcome to the Asian American and Asian Research Institute's Fine Lecture Series Online Edition. I'm Matin Wong, Program Coordinator for the Institute. I'd like to welcome all of you on this uh, beautiful Friday evening at home uh, for tonight's talk uh, on Instruments of Empire, Filipino Musicians, Black Soldiers, and Military Band Music During U.S. Colonization of the Philippines by, by Professor Mary Tolusan Lakan Male. Uh, this book was published in August 2021. Uh, and is currently available for purchase online at the University Press of Mississippi website for a special price of 2022, which is actually cheaper than Amazon and Barnes and Noble right now. So uh, if you're looking for a gift and a new book to read, please purchase. Uh, Mary Tolusan Lekanmale is Assistant Professor of Asian Pacific Studies at California State University, uh, Dominguez Hills. Uh, she is the author of Instruments of Empire and the co-editor of Our Culture Resounds, Our Future Reveals, a Legacy of Filipino-American Performing Arts in California, and is the co-producer of, um, now, apologies if I uh, mess up the pronunciation, uh, Kolintang Kultura, Dunangangnan Kaladuyan, and Gang Music of the Philippine Diaspora, uh, which she co-produced together with Theo Gonzalez, who is the Interim Director of the Asian Pacific American Center at the Smithsonian currently. And she performs with the uh, Pakarakuinan uh, Kulintang Ensemble. Uh, please welcome Professor Mary Tulsan. Hi, Anthony, and hi, everyone. Thank you so much for inviting me today. I'm really excited to talk to you uh, about my book, and um, I look forward to any discussions um, at the Q&A after my presentation. I'm just really excited that my book uh, Instruments of Empire has finally come out on uh, University Press of Mississippi. Um, and I want to, you know, kind of give you the backstory of my book, because it actually has a very personal history. Um, the band that I'm looking at, uh, the military band, is composed of Filipino musicians uh, conducted by a Black American officer in the early 20th century. Now, uh, interestingly, my great-grandfather was part of this band. And so the way I came uh, to this um, project was that when I was a teenager growing up in uh, Boston, Massachusetts, um, far away from Filipino culture or Filipino-American culture on the East Coast, uh, my grandmother here would in, um, come to Boston every couple of years. And when she came, you know, she was my only connection to the Philippines and Filipino culture. So I really um, kind of embraced and really was hungry for story, stories about the Philippines. And um, one of the stories that she, this is us playing music together, but um, one of the stories she would tell me was that she was um, a musician herself and part of an all women's brass band in the Philippines who actually um, won several awards, there she is, um, and in the Philippines for band music. And this is largely because of her father, who was uh, my maternal great-grandfather. And she would tell us this just fantastic story about this Filipino military band of like 80 members who came to the United States several times. Um, and performed all over from San Francisco to New York to Washington, D.C. And I really was intrigued, like, how is it that this 
Filipino military band came to the United States so often uh, in the early 20th century when my parents who immigrated um, in the 70s um, had a really difficult time coming. And um, by then it was the Marcos era and, and it was very difficult for Filipinos to come to the US. So she said that he was a famous conductor and even John Philip Sousa, who I had heard of in school because I was a musician myself, um, praised him and said that he was an amazing musician and the Philippine Constabulary Band was um, one of the best bands he had ever heard. And of course, this kind of sounded fantastic to me. And to be honest, I wasn't always sure if, if she was exaggerating or what. Um, but she went on to tell an even more interesting story that the head of the uh, PC band, the conductor, was actually an African-American officer. And his name was um, Lieutenant Walter H. Loving. And I thought that was, I mean, that blew my mind, to be honest. Um, to know that an African-American officer um, was the leader of the band and that he was um, highly regarded at the time. And so this, you know, put me on the journey and, you know, fast forward decades later, um, I was um, a graduate student at UCLA in ethnomusicology, and I wrote a paper for my Philippine studies class um, with uh, my professor, Michael Salmon, um, and I looked more into this band. And it was very surprising when I went into the archives and scrolled through the microfilm and found that indeed she had been telling me the truth, that there was a Philippine military band that came to the United States several times uh, to perform at World's Fairs symphony halls, and even the um, to march in the inauguration of a U.S. president. Um, so that began me on my journey of looking into the history of it. But as an ethnomusicologist, I tried to connect um, the history of the PC band and their performances to larger issues um, about race and the relationship that music performance has to um, uh, constructing representations of people, in this case, Filipinos and African-Americans, through musical performance. Um, you know, I think some of the issues that I tackled in the book are still relevant today. In fact, when, you know, you talk about Filipinos and music, uh, there are definitely a lot of kind of um, assumptions and sayings and even stereotypes about Filipinos and music. So you often hear Filipinos are natural musicians, uh, Filipinos are great singers or performers, um, they can mimic any American singer, um, they are Philippine music, and then this kind of veers off into more racialized ways of thinking about music. For example, uh, Philippine music is so westernized and Americanized that it starts to lose its own identity as a definable musical culture. Um, and this is because, so sayings go, that it's because Phil the Philippines doesn't have any authentic music um, because of the quote unquote overused quote unquote uh, 300 years in a convent and 50 years in Hollywood. So I wanted to, you know, I thought there was a connection between how we regard Filipinos and their relationship to music 
and to this early history of the circulation of representations of of and about Filipinos in the United States. So, I mean, you know, scrolling through the internet land, you can see, you know, uh, posts about Filipinos and uh, what people think about them and how their music making is really racialized um, and that, you know, it skews to not just Filipinos are good singers, but all Filipinos are good singers or all Filipinos can sing. And if you've ever met my dad, you will know that's not true. Um, but so, you know, these are the kinds of things that informed my analysis of the Philippine Constabulary Band and how they were literally heard through the lens of race, um, colonization, um, in in the early 20th century. So just to give you a broad overview of what I attend to in my book, um, I looked at several of the Philippine Constabulary Band's visits to the United States. Uh, they visited the 1904 World's Fair and they performed uh, for almost a year in St. Louis. They came to the United States in 1909 to March in Taft's presidential inauguration, and then they toured all of the, symph uh, you know, um, important symphony halls in major cities, New York, Boston, Chicago, um, Washington, D.C., and um, in San Francisco. And they also went to the 1915 Panama Pacific International Exposition, and finally their last tour of the United States was right before uh, World War II in 1939, the Golden Gate International Exposition. I can't cover all of that today, but I'm going to highlight um, certain aspects of their visits um, in my presentation. So um, to provide you know, some historical context to what's going on, and again, I can't cover all of this, but um, in my book, I talk about US colonization of the Philippines, um, which was from 1898 to 1946. I looked at uh, African-American soldiers drawing on the scholarly work of several colleagues, African-American soldiers in the Philippines, and especially uh, Walter Loving um, and his role in creating the PC band because he was um, assigned to the Philippines um, in the late 1800s. I also talk about Spanish colonization because this is a really important part of this story of the PC band because the Philippines had a long history of performing, engaging in, composing European music. Um, even before the United States landed in the Philippines and colonized it, they already had a thriving musical culture. Uh, opera singers from Europe would come to the Philippines and perform uh, with Filipino musicians. And so there was a thriving European um, musical culture in Manila. I also look at American music because if you're familiar with, you know, the works of John Philip Sousa, and other uh, band music repertoire uh, of the 20th century, um, it is um, embracing European um, musical overtures or sometimes what we would think of as uh, classical music. 
Um, and there was a, a change in the musical tastes of American audiences, because at the time, American popular music was rising, um, and a new form of music called ragtime was actually um, on fire in the United States, uh, and people um, uh, really embraced it. Uh, but the elite classes of the United States were really trying to hold on to that European musical heritage. And military bands uh, would perform um, musical um, music from European repertoire, such as opera overtures. And this was one way in which, like, the average person, the ordinary person, could access those kind of elite musics that would have been played in concert halls by symphony orchestras. So, I mean, I think the early 20th century was really a time and place of great change in the United States, not only musically, but socially and politically. But as an ethnomusicologist, I really focused in on the role that music had in, um, in not only quelling the racial anxieties, of a lot of Americans as a response to so many great changes in society, um, but also the way in which that this particular uh, Philippine colonial military band was used um, as a way to both uphold uh, the success of, or the uh, at least what they perceived as the success of U.S. intervention in the Philippines, um, and also in subtle ways. Um, commenting on um, and pushing back against the popularity of ragtime music with its roots in uh, the Black American experience. So there were a lot of things going on at the time, and um, the entry point for the Philippine Constabulary Band, um, as I will discuss, was really to um, help uh, the United States um, and especially uh, the colonial administration proved to the American public that Filipinos were going to be good, uh, if inferior, citizens of the United States. Um, so uh, I'll talk about that more in a bit. But so my initial questions um, in this project long ago was, you know, how is it possible that on the one hand, American audiences thought of Filipinos in the early 20th century as savages, that's how they were portrayed in the media, and as uncivilized, yet they could have like this high praise for the PC band's superb performances of European music. It was like, how was that contradiction able to be um, managed in the minds of American audiences? And Another question was, you know, how did American audiences understand Lieutenant Loving's leadership of the PC band at a time when Black Americans were regarded as unequal and inferior uh, to white Americans? Like, how were they able to manage that particular contradiction? And um, because I'm a musician and I'm, you know, a descendant of one of the musicians, uh, how can I understand the story from the Filipino musician's perspective? Like, can I interpret or am I projecting? Um, and how do I uncover their experiences? Uh, my great-grandfather and the other members of the band didn't leave diaries that would have helped me 
uh, understand these questions. Lieutenant Loving himself didn't explicitly write about his experiences um, in the uh, sort of racial encounters that he would have had uh, during their performances. So I really had to do a lot of um, interpreting um, from their perspectives. But so you might be asking, you know, what is what are the ways that Filipino um, Filipinos and African Americans, how were they racialized at the time? Well, during the Spanish American War, which the United uh, United States was uh, fighting in the Philippines, and then the Philippine American War, um, Filipinos were racialized much in the same way as stereotypical and derogatory images of African Americans were were also, uh, they used kind of the same templates uh, to make Filipinos understandable to, um, to Americans at the time. And so you see images like this, which I took from a great book called The Forbidden Book, The Philippine-American War in Political Cartoons. And it's pretty clear um, that in the early, um, that the, the late 1800s, early 1900s, these are images of Filipinos that really mimic the way that Black Americans were stereotyped. And here are more. Um, these, you know, popular and derogatory images of African Americans were popular in minstrel shows, especially Blackface and Vaudeville in the United States. Um, they were used in the aftermath of the Civil War as a backlash against African-American political participation and social participation in American life. Um, and so they kind of use the same images to frame uh, Filipinos and perhaps forecast how they would want to uh, treat them in American society. So African-American soldiers um, uh, were deployed to the Philippines, not so much to fight against the Spanish, but to fight in the Philippine-American War, so fighting Filipinos. And uh, according to several amazing scholars, including um, Cynthia Marasigan, um, they were quite ambivalent about their position um, in helping to um, subjugate Filipinos, who in some ways they saw as cousins of color, um, as my colleague Donna Nickel at uh, California State Dominguez Hills um, called them. So um, uh, several uh, African-American regiments, uh, segregated regiments were deployed to the Philippines, including the 9th and 10th Cavalry, known as the Buffalo Soldiers. And uh, Walter Loving was um, part of the 48th Regiment um, when he came to the Philippines. So back to the ambivalence, um, some American, Black American soldiers um, identified as American citizens and U.S. soldiers saying that it's, it's not up to us to decide um, what to do here in the Philippines and who to fight. Uh, we are American soldiers who are going to follow the orders um, of the, uh, the U.S. military. Some of these letters were in African-American newspapers. Really, that's one of the few ways that we can get at sort of firsthand accounts of um, the Philippine-American War from the African-American perspective. So I take these from um, Willard Gatewood's Smoked Yankees. Other soldiers, however, um, formed friendships. And I think most people know about um, David Fagan, who 
um, were, was one of about 30 uh, Black American soldiers who actually um, went and fought for, um, uh, on the Filipino side. Um, and so some, but the soldiers who did not do that, um, you know, were friendly with Filipinos and even had um, some close friendships with them. And some of them were highly regarded. Um, they had this to say in newspapers, I've uh, mingled freely, freely with the natives and have had talks with American colored men who've been here for years. And um, to learn about the cause of uh, Filipino dissatisfaction, you know, towards Americans and the reason for this insurrection. And I must confess they have a just grievance. All of this never would have occurred if the army of occupation would have treated them as people, uh, end quote, from an unidentified Negro soldier in 1900. So, you know, I think this um, helps us to understand um, uh, Walter Loving, because he was, um, you know, an African-American um, officer uh, in the Philippine Constabulary, but he also had close relationship with the Filipino musicians. Um, I read uh, that he spoke Spanish, and a lot of Filipinos at this time spoke Spanish, and so they would have had a close relationship through uh, that shared language. Uh, but the other shared language they had was music, um, and music uh, as I said earlier, uh, European music, military band music, had been in the Philippines for 200 years at least. Uh, Filipinos uh, were musicians in the Spanish army, and then they became came town brass musicians. And they would hand down uh, their knowledge from father to son. So, excuse me, the um, Filipino musicians in the Philippine Constabulary Band um, came from generations of band musicians. Even my great-grandfather was raised in Manila in a Catholic monastery from an early age, under 10 years old, and he studied music daily. Uh, he could compose, he could arrange music, he could play multiple instruments. He was very thoroughly uh, trained in European music. So when uh, American soldier musicians um, got to the Philippines, they found that Filipinos were already um, well-versed in military band music. At the time, military band music was like the music of the world, um, especially in colonial societies uh, that, uh, like, for example, the British um, in India um, formed many brass bands. So this was a worldwide phenomenon, and Filipinos had already been playing this um, for a long time by the time the United States got there. This is gonna become very important. So I hope you just hold on uh, to that information for a bit. Um, so, you know, back to my question about how, how was it that American audiences could listen to Filipinos play in the Filipino, uh, Philippine Constabulary Band and hear their superb playing of European concert music and still think they were uncivilized. Like, how does that happen? Well, uh, what I argued in my um, book was that they um, 
listened with what I call an imperial ear. Listening is, is yes, hearing the music on the one hand, but it's really informed by how you think about the people playing it. And so all of this uh, worked together to portray Filipinos as uh, both superb at music, yet always inferior um, to uh, white American music making. Um, and so uh, what I wanted to do was to show how that happened. So um, my main arguments um, was, are, my main arguments are that the Philippine Constabulary Band was represented in the American news media, newspapers mostly, in ways that served uh, the propagandistic aims of the U.S. administration and the U.S. colonial administration. So it was American newspapers and, you know, literature in the World's Fair, ways that they were uh, contextualized at the World's Fair that really developed for American audiences what I call that imperial ear, because they listened to Filipinos differently, and they, make, they made judgments about Filipino music making based on all the uh, pernicious derogatory stereotypes that were out there. You know, but still, the question is, you know, how, you know, why did they love the Philippine Constabulary Band so much then? Uh, how was it that they just had so much high praise for this band? Um, well, it's because I think that even the praise for the PC band's musical achievements, they also served to uphold white uh, American superiority by claiming that Filipinos were trained and civilized by U.S. tutelage. Um, bec and because they were naturally musical, which is both uh, biological and racial um, stereotype, they had no problem sort of adapting to and mimicking uh, American uh, military band music or Western uh, because it did was European and, and also American. Um, they could mimic any kind of music. And so um, this really took away uh, Filipinos identity in a music that they had been performing for generations. Um, and so, you know, American newspapers of and about the PC band really helped to shape their audience's imperial ears. Uh, there was, I mean, the Fili that Filipinos were kind of naturally musical, that's, that's an old stereotype. It, it's been an idea that was promoted uh, by the Spanish um, during um, colonization and Christianization, that Filipinos are musical people. I mean, yeah, I agree with that. Music is definitely part of Filipino culture. Um, and uh, even today, uh, when, you know, your auntie puts a mic in your hand at a family party so you can sing karaoke, it's part of the culture. It's what we do uh, in social situations. And from an early age, you're going to develop some musical skills um, from from that kind of socialization. But, um, you know, during American colonization, this shifted to somewhat more racial um, ideas about Filipinos and kind of crystallized 
um, so that we still think all Filipinos are, are good singers. And, and I'll talk about the, um, the downside of that seemingly um, uh, complementary um, stereotype. So, well, what kind of music did the Philippine Constabulary Band play? They played American and European military band music. Um, for example, at the 1904 World's Fair, uh, they played Sousa's Stars and Stripes Forever the most out of any band at the fair, even more than Sousa's band himself, because Sousa, Philip, John Philip Sousa was around during that time. He was at the fair with the Philippine Constabulary. They played it more than John Philip Sousa's band. And I think this was deliberate. I think this was precisely to promote the idea that Filipinos were being civilized and crafted into um, uh, American uh, subjects, proper American subjects um, through the playing of music. Um, and what gets erased though is through that particular representation is the Philippines' own music history. Um, you'll, newspapers said things like, well, they're so good at it because the Philippines has no native music and they had to adapt um, to American and European music because they have no native music. And so, you know, this really kind of um, uh, terribly does terrible things to um, our knowledge of Philippine uh, culture and Filipino music history and all the ways that I think um, these stereotypes have lasted uh, to today. So um, newspapers also claimed that Lieutenant Loving randomly selected a bunch of Filipinos and in two years, because uh, the PC band was founded in 1904 and uh, they were at the World's Fair, I mean, sorry, they were founded in 1902 and they were at the World's Fair in 1904. So how is it that, you know, John Philip Sousa said, the Philippine Constabulary Band plays um, as well <clears throat> as the U.S. Marine Band. It, I mean, that's pretty shocking in two years. And so I guess as a musician, I know that that's impossible. That's just can't be like a thing. It just uh, would be impossible to train people. But people, uh, most Americans believed it. Uh, they're reading newspapers and they're, um, you know, seemingly authoritative. And so it's wondrous. Um, it's an exciting time to be a colonizer that we acquired these people who can miraculously um, acquire a level of civilization in just two years. So this was really sold to the American public. And again, Americans loved the PC band. They flocked to their concerts. They um, cheered them as at parades. Um, and, you know, it, so, you know, I'm trying to manage um, when I was doing the research, like, how, how do I like really get at understanding what's going on here? Uh, let me just focus on the 1904 World's Fair. Um, somebody forwarded, forwarded to me a post on Facebook and people are still talking about it. Filipino Americans are still wondering about this fair and, and the ways in which uh, Filipinos were treated, especially people from tribal um, groups. Um, some of them called it, you know, the, a human zoo. Uh, and, you know, we still have feelings about this particular moment in history, as we should. 
um, it was um, quite deplorable the ways in which Filipinos were depicted, especially um, indigenous people. Um, they were promoted as savages, as headhunters, um, as uh, people that were in need of American civilization. And so uh, uh, Paul Kramer's uh, book, The Blood of Government, really does a great job of going um, into more of the a political and historical and even economic considerations um, of the World's Fair. But um, in general, uh, American audiences didn't separate the Filipino tribal people from the Hispanicized Filipinos um, to the more Americanized Filipinos, if you will, they kind of collapse all of these things into one. So I think the overwhelming message was that Filipinos are savages. Um, in fact, there were uh, Filipino students who were called pensionados here um, by 1904, studying um, in various universities around the country. And they came to the, um, the 1904 World's Fair. And this is in newspapers. Um, people, Americans would come up to them and say, do you like wearing clothes? You know, as if all Filipinos um, were dressed in the same attire as um, the uh, indigenous people. So it really, um, I think that's where these uh, stereotypes began and they still circulate today. Well, music really was um, uh, cast as one of those elements that showed a uh, culture's um, uh, level of civilization. And so for a lot of Americans, um, the, this is of the Bontoc, uh, Bontoc man, um, what the American colonial administration was doing was to change or transform Filipinos from tribal people uh, to semi-civilized and then to more acceptable um, colonial subjects, um, especially uh, through the military. And so the Philippine Constabulary Band at the 1904 World's Fair was really the foil um, against which uh, Filipino savagery uh, or civilization uh, was measured. They uh, were um, directly juxtaposed with Filipino tribal people to show Americans what uh, could be possible um, by colonizing the Philippines and giving them adequate um, education and, and tutelage by the United States, because there was still much doubt in um, the benefits of colonizing the Philippines. And the 1904 World's Fair was really about trying to quell those fears uh, that the American public had, that they had acquired an island, uh, you know, islands of, of savages. Um, okay, and so here just you know, some clippings from various newspapers at the time. Um, uh, this, these are uh, people from the south um, of the Philippines, um, the Etas, or what were known as Negritos at the time, um, the uh, Bontocs of the Highland, uh, Highland Cordillera Mountains of the Philippines. And um, even a music researcher who who's thought of as like one of the first ethnomusicologists um, studied the Philippines uh, for Filipino music making and um, 
unfortunately, she didn't have, uh, you know, an early recording. She had to transcribe all of these pieces. And she was just baffled um, by some of the music making of the different um, indigenous communities. Um, and so through her eyes, because of the, quote, chaotic um, sounds of their music and their undecipherable musical structure, they must be at the beginning of uh, this evolutionary idea of civilization, you know, at the pinnacle of which would be uh, um, white Europeans, white Americans. And so everybody else was on this kind of continuum that was trying to strive to uh, the utmost pinnacle of uh, civilization and using European music as as um, the the model of of civilized music um, and so let me go forward a little bit oh, yeah. sorry so that was just a, a little bit of um, Samal music and uh, again she was not able she just thought of it as chaotic so when she and others like John Philip Sousa um, regarded the Philippine Constabulary Band, they just seemed automatically assimilated to American culture. They played uh, American patriotic music with such gusto that, uh, that everyone assumed that they were expressing patriotism. Um, but, you know, I tried to put myself in their place, and, and I think that they weren't necessarily doing that. Um, I think for them, playing uh, American patriotic music, European opera overtures, um, was a way to really um, project their own sense of pride in their tradition, in, in what's called banda tradition, I mean, coming from band, um, but a, a similar tradition in the Philippines, which was um, Philippine um, military band music. So just because they were playing in the same sort of musical language as, um, as Americans and European band musicians, it doesn't mean that they thought of themselves in the same way. And so these are kind of, you know, some ways in which I'm trying to get under um, uh, under these these things and try to analyze uh, their performance from their perspective. Um, so John Philip Sousa, he did indeed say it. He, uh, my grandmother was right. Um, the Philippine Constabular Band of 80 Native Musicians has furnished the musical sensation of the World's Fair being pronounced by John Philip Sousa as the most wonderful military band he ever listened to. Um, I thought that was amazing, yes, but then I thought, how do they um, reconcile uh, this idea of Filipinos as savages, as uncivilized, um, with the superbness or the, uh, the excellence of these quote-unquote native musicians? Um, you know, in or while these Filipino musicians were highlighted by the press, they rarely met, mentioned that um, Walter Loving was African-American. In fact, out of like hundreds of newspapers, I literally only found his uh, racial identity mentioned a handful of times. And, uh, you know, uh, it was common at the time if someone wasn't identified 
um, as black or what they would call Negro, then it was assumed that they were white. So while people at the fair might have thought he was Filipino or uh, or they knew he was African-American, you know, thousands more readers, um, it, it would have, uh, to not mention Loving's racial identity would have just erased in the minds of other readers that um, he was uh, um, uh, an African-American officer in a, in a high position in the military. So unfortunately, while a lot of newspapers talked about, you know, the the little brown brothers of the Philippine Constabulary Band come from 12 different tribes and they look identical to each other. And that's another contradiction. Uh, they rarely mentioned Walter that Walter Loving was an African-American officer. So in these ways, you could see that the, um, you know, newspapers were um, definitely portraying the PC band as an achievement of white American superiority um, and not just American superiority. So, um, as I said, there was a lot of praise for the Philippine Constabulary Band. Um, but I think the question is, what kind of praise was that? Um, they're well-received. Uh, people would... Um, show up to their concerts and there wouldn't be uh, enough seats. And so they would, um, the venue would have to book another concert the next day. In fact, they would kick out whoever was playing the next day and put, and they'd have to like pay a fee, but they would put the Philippine Constabulary Band on the program. And so um, they were very highly, highly sought after by audiences from San Francisco to um, to Boston. Um, they also played at Atlantic City. They were supposed to play for like um, a, a couple of weeks. They ended up playing by demand the whole summer, so several months. Um, and they were just a huge hit and a huge moneymaker um, for Atlantic City venues. All right. Um, so the PC band actually came to my hometown in Boston, um, and I was just so thrilled to find out that they had played at Boston Symphony Hall in 1909, because um, in the 80s, I played there um, with my, um, uh, in high school with the Boston, uh, sorry, Greater Boston Youth Symphony Orchestra, um, and so in Boston, which has a long history of um, very knowledgeable uh, musical audiences or symphony-going audiences, um, they played several times and they uh, booked several concerts with the PC band. Um, when they learned, uh, the first day they were there, they made no mention that Loving was African-American. And by the third day, uh, they did mention that uh, Loving was um, a Negro officer, as they said, and that he also went to New England Conservatory. And I had happened to go there, you know, decades later, um, but that he was a product of, you know, Boston musical training. So when the rare times that Loving was identified as an African-American, um, they quickly um, uh, use his educational background as sort of a way to justify his leadership of the band. 
There was one other way in San Francisco that he was identified as a Black American officer and in, in very derogatory ways. Um, that was not common, but I wanted to show that the handful of ways that Loving's identity as a Black officer was identified, there was al always some caveat with it um, the, to explain his leadership um, of the band. In Boston also, um, the Boston audiences just couldn't believe, and uh, rightly so, that Filipino musicians in two short years had become amazing um, concert musicians. It just wasn't possible. So what they did was to give the Philippine Constabulary Band a series of test compositions. Um, Test compositions were um, quite common in Europe, um, and you would give a composition to a band uh, that they had not seen before so that they can prove that they could sight read. Reading and reading music, music was kind of a sign of civilization. Uh, if you could read music, then you could, uh, then you could definitely demonstrate that you were a learned musician um, and that you were um, you belonged to a culture of um, elite concert music. The Philippine Constabulary Band didn't think this way. In fact, to show that they were musically superior, Filipino bands would memorize their music. It wasn't enough to just read the music from score. They had to memorize it. In fact, there were these uh, competitions in the Philippines amongst town brass bands called um, tambakan, and they were would end up in a duel in which two bands would play against each other, um, you know, alternate, and whoever could play the most compositions by heart, and sometimes this would take days. I, I've read that it lasted a week at one point. That's how they were. They would prove that they were musically superior. So they memorized their music, and reading music was not enough to show uh, your musical um, um, uh, musical prowess. And so in Boston, uh, the Boston audiences said, "Here's a score that you've never seen before. Play this," and they could play it. And of course, they were really amazing musicians and they played it and Boston audiences were just um, thrilled. They couldn't believe it. And they, um, they said things like they, the PC band indeed proved that they were musicians. Um, and so here's, you know, where that idea of Filipinos as natural musicians, as mimics, um, because they uh, doubted that uh, Filipinos were indeed playing music. Maybe they were just mimicking music and not really playing it. So this is stripped, of, you know, their artistry and their heritage and their long history is just stripped away from them because of uh, the portrayals of Filipino musicians as naturally musical and as able to um, be civilized by the United States in just two short years. Um, so in that way, um, you know, 
putting Filipinos in their place, despite the fact that they were being complimented, um, you know, was was an act of uh, domination, symbolic violence, and um, erasing uh, Loving's identity as a Black American just erased the collaboration uh, between Filipinos and African Americans and their achievements. Um, so, uh, unfortunately, you know that is something that uh, that followed the PC band um, during their tours. Um, but to his great um, uh, to Loving's leadership. I would highly praise him because he did a number of things that I think kind of pushed back against the ways that they were, uh, the musicians were being um, discussed in the press. In fact, um, I think because they were often, you know, um, described as identical little men, little brown men who um, were uh, suddenly made into superb musicians by the United States, he would um, often feature soloists at, um, so he would pick out different um, musicians from the band who were soloists. And I think um, I counted uh, or I uh, looked at their repertoire and often um, at least half the concert was uh, featuring soloists. So I, I think this was a way to highlight the Filipino musicians themselves um, and to show that they um, were artists. And so this is my great grandfather here in uh, one of the newspapers, Pedro Navarro. He was a soloist on piccolo. Um, this is uh, several soloists um, um, uh, during 1909. Uh, so I think Walter Loving did what he could um, to push back against these pernicious stereotypes about the PC band. Um, also, he programmed works by Filipino composers. Um, the first time was during their very first visit to the United States, and um, they performed uh, pieces, an a entire program by Philippine uh, composers. Um, and he did this at uh, not all of the concerts, but several concerts in which he programmed works by uh, Filipino composers. So the Philippine Constabulary Band, even though they were sort of portrayed or used as an instrument of empire to promote the success of uh, U.S. colonization in the Philippines, they did what they could to sort of resist um, that those uh, particular ways that they were represented. Um, so I, I saw this and I wanted to give voice um, to their resistance uh, and the, the limited ways that they did were able to resist um, um, their, their context in the United States. Uh, so I want to highlight one um, concert that took place um, at the 1904, because this legend is still around today. I hear older folks uh, in the Philippines uh, who are musicians tell me about this legend. The legend goes, and I believe it's absolutely true, by the way, uh, because I've heard it some, from so many different people, but the legend goes that uh, the Philippine Constabulary Band was playing um, 
at 19 in the 1904 World's Fair. And in the middle of their performance, the lights went out. Um, I did find evidence of a storm that happened in 1904. I think it was in August. Uh, there was a tornado in St. Louis. Um, and there were reports that other bands who were playing that night had to stop playing because they couldn't read the music. Well, the Philippine Constabulary Band, they also had a concert that night. And while they were playing, the lights went out, but they didn't miss a beat and they just kept playing. This is kind of my rendition of what that might have been like. And this is the exact piece that they were playing. I know because my cousin's name is Rossini. Um, and in, in tribute to the piece that they were playing, William Tell, When the Lights Went Out. Okay, so, um, you know, this is a great legend, and I've heard it my whole life, and I really, you know, wanted to understand what it meant. Um, were, they were they just miraculous? <laughs> because the audience thought so. Um, they thought that the, you know, PC band was miraculous, but they also had the sneaking suspicion that the band wasn't really playing music, but simply mimicking music. So in my whole sort of historicization of music in the Philippines, I wanted to show that Philippine band music or the banda tradition continued in the United States despite the genre of music they were playing. So a way of playing Philippine music uh, continued um, across through and beyond the, U the U.S. colonial experience. And so that's how I interpret that particular legend, is that when the lights went out, the Philippine Constabulary Band, uh, they weren't mimicking music. They relied on their own tradition um, of playing by heart um, without music because they memorized it. And they continued on um, in their own style of playing when the lights were out. I also kind of make a leap to question, um, well, how really were they in need of American civilization and tutelage? Um, you know, they didn't need the technological advancements uh, that um, U.S. colonization provided. Uh, in this instance, they didn't need uh, the tutelage of Americans and so-called civilized music in this instance, and they really relied on their own band tradition to get them through this moment. So that's just some of the ways that I interpret it, um, and I, I have uh, discussed it more in depth in, in the book. Um, so that's pretty much um, what I, how I um, uh, analyzed that particular legend. Um, and I want to point out one more thing that I found quite peculiar, but I think I um, uh, can interpret the, um, how Filipinos 
were um, were uh, forcing audiences, their American audiences, to really hear them. There were two instances in which the PC band sang rather than play expertly on their musical instruments. In the middle of a concert, they laid down their so-called instruments of empire and sang in their own uh, imperfect voices. I have no doubt that they could hold a tune, but why did they risk this moment to put down their instruments, instruments that they trained all day for many years in, and sing? Um, they could have played. Why did they sing? And so um, I think that they sang to compel their American audiences to hear their voices as Filipinos. And they sang a Filipino folk song. This would have been a very intimate, emotional moment for these Filipino musicians because they were distanced from their professional training as instrumentalists. Um, whose musicianship was mediated by their instruments, um, their brass instruments. They sang with the timbres of their own voices to allow for the expression of deep personal feelings that may have resulted from homesickness because they were away for a year from their families, um, exhaustion from endless concerts, demanding perfection, and grief um, from the deaths of a couple of their fellow bandsmen. Um, and also the pressure of being in the public eye in ways not of their own choosing or uh, preference. So singing in their own voices would have been risky, but I think they took this risk in that moment for their um, for its greater emotional force. Um, so here are oops, sorry. Um, here are some sources on um, Colonel Walter. Loving, um, who these scholars kind of delve more into his life um, uh, in their work. Um, and also, um, I have another book that's actually free to download. Um, Our Culture Resounds, Our Future Reveals, A Legacy of Filipino-American Performing Arts in California. If you scan that, you can download this for free. And there's um, amazing video links, live links in the PDF that you can click and be directed to a website, uh, uh, California um, Revealed Archive, um, where you can watch the videos. Um, And also um, a recent CD that I co-produced, Kuling Tang Kultura, uh, Denongan Kalanduyang and Gong Music of the Philippine Diaspora by Smithsonian Folkways. Maraming salamat po. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you very much for a great presentation. Uh, I actually have one question. What, what instrument did you actually play for band? <laughs> oh, me, I actually played in an orchestra. So I, I never did play like marching band music. Um, but yeah, I, I played in a symphony orchestra. Oh, but what particular instrument? Oh, sorry. Yes, cello. I played the cello. Yeah, I dabbled in the flute back in uh, junior high. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, my sister played flute. But yeah. So uh, we have a question from the audience. But before we uh, take that, just want to ask you, how long did the book project actually take you to finish and get published? Wow. Yes, uh, that was a long road. Um, I started research um, in it when I was in my early 20s. And it... Really, um, well, uh, University Press of Mississippi 
Um, I've been with them for a couple of years. I missed all my deadlines. Um, and this was not my dissertation. My dissertation was on Muslim Filipino music of the Southern Philippines. So it was really a labor of love that I completed over the summers, over in between, you know, whatever my kids were doing. And um, I'm just really so grateful that uh, people supported me and, and uh, encouraged me to keep going. Um, and so it took many years um, for me to complete the work and, and get it published, but I, I'm so excited. Well, congratulations, it's finally out. So we have a question from a CK So who asks, uh, why are Filipinos overwhelmingly still so pro-American in spite of having their independence quashed by the U.S. in 1880, uh, 1898 brutally. Uh, what is being taught about the U.S. occupation in the Philippines today? Oh, gosh, thank you for that question. I think it has, you know, a number of complicated answers. I wouldn't want to pretend to speak for all Filipinos, but I do have, um, you know, a few ideas. I think that, um, you know, what I've been talking about, representation, really shapes the way that people think about something, a historical event, a colonizer, um, music, everything like that. So I think, you know, the United States and America has um, still being promoted in overwhelmingly positive ways that um, invisibilize some of the um, negative um, things that have happened during uh, the Spanish-American War and then the ensuing Philippine-American War. I think that Mac MacArthur's return after World War II uh, is still huge in the minds of Filipinos. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the United States is, is really framed in ways that don't account for both the negative and the positive um, so, yeah, there, there's very much a, still a positive outlook about the United States. Uh, how about in terms of uh, the academic uh, curriculum right now? Is uh, there much being taught about the Filipino history, Filipino American history? I know that just last month was uh, Filipino American History Month. Uh, I, I know it's a big push in California, especially. Uh, what's being done in California in terms of, uh, I mean, right now, ethnic studies is a requirement for high school mm -hmm. students. Um, how, how's that going right now? Yeah, yeah, I'm really, really happy about that. And um, I, I'm not sure, but I, I feel like that a lot of my colleagues um, are um, quite thrilled that ethnic studies is now a requirement and that um, Filipino Americans and other people of color, Indigenous Americans, are able to learn um, their histories um, and uh, very much with professors that share a similar experience. I, I hope that translates to the, um, the Philippines. I don't know uh, the curriculum in the Philippines right now, but I, I suspect that there isn't a lot of talk about Filipino American history um, uh, or not too many classes that take a critical eye towards the uh, U.S. colonization and that experience. I'm not saying all Filipinos embrace it or have a positive view of it. Um, I, I think there could be, there should be a lot more classes that uh, interrogate deeply that um, that history, that shared history. If folks actually want to learn a little bit more about 
Latino American history. They actually go to the uh, UC Davis's Belusan Center for Filipino Studies, and there might be more uh, resources there for folks. And also uh, in terms of the World's Fair, which you actually mentioned, uh, back in 2020, during the pandemic, APA Heritage Month, they did uh, air on PBS, the docu-series, Asian Americans. And mm-hmm. the very first item that they talked about That's in crazy. that docu-series was the 1904 uh, World's Fair and the, uh, the human zoo with the Filipino tribes. In it. So that, that was included there. So if folks want to know more about that and other parts of Asian American history, you can uh, check out PBS Asian Americans. Yes, yes. Thank you for bringing that up. I was really happy to see that included in that that uh, PBS series on Asian Americans. Um, and I think, you know, people have questions about that. Um, and hopefully what my book argues is that even the, the positive regard for the Filipino Constabulary Band, who was at the 1904, um, that also served to support um, the uh, legitimate uh, legitimization of U.S. colonization of the Philippines because they were upheld as, you know, the success and possibility of uh, U.S. tutelage and assimilation. And I think those two parts should be taken together. I think uh, focusing on, yes, the ways that um, indigenous communities were portrayed, absolutely, that is uh, absolutely important to regard. But I, it's a 360 view of the situation and even the positive um, uh, representations of Filipinos through the Philippine Constabulary Band and the Philippine Scouts, they also serve to legitimize um, the colonial administration's um, agenda towards the Philippines. So uh, out of the docuseries uh, that they did for PBS, um, the uh, Asian American Justice Center in L.A., uh, they work together with another group, offshoot group called Asian American Education Project, right? So out of the docu-series, they made classroom lesson plans. And one of the lesson plans deals with the 1904 World's Fair. So your your book, in terms of the band itself, also being at the event, should be a part of that sort of like a classroom lesson plan in terms of like a supplementary uh, material, just so people know, that, you know, another side of the situation, as you said. Yes, I agree. I agree because I think, most people that I've encountered, when they do hear about the Philippine Constabulary Band, they use it as a foil to say, well, it wasn't that bad. I mean, they did um, have good things to say about this band that was there. And so, you know, I want to insert and advocate and uh, complexify that kind of um, compliment, because uh, that also, as I said, served to uphold a notion of... um, you know, the legitimacy of U.S. colonization. So I hope I could pr- uh, promote that as well. So we have uh, Francis uh, Marancillo, who says, uh, thanks for a wonderful talk. Uh, thank you. Uh, they were wondering about what you said about the split of the American gays, as well as that of the Filipino. What is your take on Filipino band players who were praised for their accomplishment in the 1904 Louisiana Fair, uh, while their brethren were dog, dog eaters? Uh, I think we touched upon this just before in terms of our comments but maybe you have some, something else additional to say yeah the their brethren uh, that's where i kind of will uh, what i will focus on um filipinos at the time didn't think that they were all one 
people hand in hand in um, to oppose the American or even the Spanish. Uh, they were often uh, pitted against each other um, in order to um, serve the Spanish against one and another. So I uh, doubt, and I, I think I'm pretty sure about this, that they didn't think of themselves as, as one people um, and that they also might have gazed upon uh, the um, tribal people as inferior to themselves. So um, I, there were several um, accounts by American newspapers and, you know, American newspapers chose what to um, discuss. They might not have discussed any ways in which Filipinos were kind to each other or uh, reached out across their ethnic, uh, ethno-linguistic divides towards each other. Um, but they, they did talk about uh, the Philippine scouts and the constabulary. They didn't, they weren't just bands. They were precisely there to police the other groups. And so um, while there, there were um, three quarters of the people there were the Philippine Constabulary and the Philippine Scouts who were part of the U.S. Army. So the United States used Filipinos to police other Filipinos. Um, and so they would have had that built into their, um, their social interactions with, um, with each other. So I'm sure that the Philippine Constabulary and Scouts um, probably um, saw the different uh, tribal groups in the same way that um, the Americans did. Uh, but I think, you know, someone could go uh, more into that and, and investigate that more thoroughly. That's just kind of my answer from, from what I know. Great. Uh, next question is from Constacio Arnaldo. Uh, they purchased your book. Can't oh. wait to read it. And uh, they say, what can we take away from your book that can speak to our contemporary moment, especially in the context of anti-Asian sentiment and the Black Lives Matter movement? Yes, thank you so much. I mean, I think, you know, um, one of the ways is to uncover um, the different ways that people of color, and in this case, Filipinos and African-Americans, collaborated and joined forces in the past. This wasn't you know, yesterday, this wasn't in the 60s, this was in the late 1800s. Um, and uh, I think it's important to like really uncover that history. Um, but also to keep in mind that, um, that African Americans and Filipinos are individuals, they have a variety of outlooks and opinions um, about each other or about their collaboration with each other. But um, in terms of the Philippine Constabulary Band and Walter Loving, uh, they had an amazing relationship that lasted decades. Uh, my great-grandfather and Colonel Loving were friends right up until Loving died during, uh, he was uh, imprisoned by the Japanese during World War II, and he died on Philippine soil. So he um, had 40 years of living and working in the Philippines. And I think, uh, and there were also a number of African-American soldiers that stayed there. So, um, you know, while it wasn't always perfect, uh, I think it is important to uncover and discuss these collaborations between um, 
minority groups in the United States. I think we need to revise the way that we talk about Filipinos and music. And I'm not saying that there aren't great Filipino singers. There are, but it's just not racial. No Philip, no one, no human being is uh, as a group or culture are born with more or less musical skills than another culture. It's really a cultural thing. It's part of the Filipino culture. And I feel like every time I hear like, oh, well, she's amazing because she's Philip or she's a great singer because she's Filipino or he's a great singer just because they're Filipino. I think that just really undermines us as individuals and as artists, we're never going to be seen as artists or individuals if we keep saying that all Filipinos are naturally musical. I mean, this is the same thing as the model minority myth. You know, all Asians are smart. Well, it just erases all the hard work you did, all the ways in which you struggled um, and, and your achievement as a, a person, as an individual, as an autonomous, independent human being. So I think we need to find a different way of complimenting Filipinos when it comes to music. Constacio uh, says they agree. Thank you. 100%. <laughs> so uh, CK So asks, uh, what's the view of Filipinos towards Spain, their former colonial master? Uh, is, it a is it as favorable as their view of the United States? Thank you for the question. And again, you know, I can't, I don't want to speak for all Filipinos. We have a variety of opinions about this um, and, uh, and, you know, and a variety of outlooks. And, and I believe that um, their view towards either Spain or the United States is neither always 100% positive or 100% negative. Like in some ways, um, this was enriched um, by Spain, or this was enriched by the United States. But also, at the same time, simultaneously, this was suppressed, and this had a negative impact on Filipino culture. So it just would be really uh, difficult to um, understand what the Philippines would be like without uh, the history of colonization. But I think to move like the discussion forward, I think, you know, there are some positive um, views of what we inherited for the Spanish, especially if one is really religious. I'm sure they uh, are happy or um, feel good about the fact that the uh, Spanish brought Catholicism. But yes, on the other hand, it, it brought in a lot of negative things as well as suppressing indigenous um, culture. Um, so I, I think they have a variety of responses, and and I do as well. Um, it wasn't wh wholesale or monolithically good or bad. Um, it, it, and at this point, it, it is what it is. But moving forward, I think the movement should be about um, looking at Filipinos as rightfully artistic uh, in the realm of music, rightfully um, artistic and independent, and no matter what genre they're singing in or playing in, um, they have a right to do it. American popular music was in the Philippines before Filipinos even went to the United States. African-American soldiers played 
for Manila cabarets. And they were making a ton of money, actually, according to newspapers, um, doing that much more than they were being played by the military, uh, paid by the military. So American music was in the Philippines before uh, Filipinos had waves of migration uh, to the United States. So when we say that, you know, Filipinos are great at this, uh, American music, that's been part of the culture for a very long time. And I think they have every right to continue making music in whatever genre they see fit. Um, I don't think any Filipinos are claiming that they invented that. Um, but it has been part of their culture for a long time. When Filipinos got to California in the um, early uh, 30s, late 20s, early 30s, they had already been playing jazz in the Philippines. Um, and so when they got to California and playing were at those taxi dance halls, uh, they weren't mimics of American culture. They, they brought it with them to America. So um, I think uh, that history needs more more looking into. In fact, the book that I co-edited with Eleanor Lepot, we did that book because we couldn't find a lot on the history of Filipino American musicians um, in the United States or, or California. Uh, even to this day, I was looking for something like that back in grad school. And um, we wanted to put that together to kind of put a, a comprehensive view of the difference genres of music making by Filipino Americans. So I hope that's, that's useful and it's free. I do want to thank Mary once again for a wonderful presentation. Uh, we look forward to seeing her again February uh, 2022 for that's her presentation right. with Theo Gonzalez mm -hmm. on uh, Tanangan, Kalanduyan and the Gang music of the Philippine diaspora. You're going to hear the actual music that she co-produced. And once again, if you, uh, if you want to purchase a copy of Instruments of Empire, go online to the University Press of Mississippi website. Uh, the link is available on our lecture page for Mary's talk tonight, or you just Google it and find it online. Uh, it's currently on sale for $20.22. As I mentioned, it's uh, actually cheaper than Amazon or uh, Barnes & Nobles right now. So good purchase. And with that, enjoy your weekend, everyone. Enjoy your weekend, Mary. And remember, everybody, to be an upstander if you see a fellow person in need. And good night. And see you next Friday. Good night, everybody. Thank you, everyone.